0: Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com.
1: I'm Sandy Metz, and you're listening to The ChangeLog.
0: Welcome back, everyone. This is The ChangeLog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 225, and today we're joined by Sandy Metz, author of Pooter, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, she also recently released her latest book, 99 Bottles of OOP, with co-author Katrina Owen. We talked to Sandy about her beginnings on the mainframe, 30-plus years of programming experience, the ins and outs of OOP. And we also covered some listener-submitted questions at the end of the show. We have three sponsors, Heap, Rollbar, and Code School. Our first sponsor of the show today is our friends at Heap. Heap is a new sponsor of ours. Check out heapanalytics.com changelog. Heap automatically tracks everything your users do, every click, every page view, every tap, swipe, or gesture a user does on your website or your mobile app that's tracked by Heap. And I talked to Alan DeSauza, the director of product analytics for Lending Club, and he shared some insights on how his team relies upon web analytics, but more importantly, why Heap was the right choice for them. Take a listen.
2: My team and I, you know, we, we work on web analytics quite a bit and very quickly we realized that we were not good at anticipating every single question that would come up. We could get questions from, uh, you know, different departments about, well, how many people are looking at this agreement on this page or how many people clicked on this particular link in a seven-day period? And of the time, that link actually has no value uh, until that discrete question comes up. And those moments are tough, right? So we really wanted something that addressed that.
0: You know, it seems to me for analytics, you want a silver bullet. You want something that kind of predicts what you want, the clicks, the events, all these different things. And most tools out there, you have to kind of granularly go through each one and select the things you want. That's different with heat. Can you talk about that?
2: When I looked into other possible um, web analytics tools, a lot of them, what's nice about them is you're able to go to their site and sign up for an account and you know, they give you the snippet and you can kind of get on your way. So I got the tags, went ahead and, uh, and implemented all three of them in kind of a local environment of our site on my machine. And and what I noticed was 10 minutes later, keeps getting all this data while the other two were silent. And, and that's just a, a factor of how the tool works. But that's exactly what we needed. Right? Our, our engineering team kind of reduced the burden on them make this as effortless as possible, yet track really rich data. And Heap just worked. And that that, it kind of lived up to all the uh, the messaging on their site. Okay, so
0: here you are. You've got Heap installed, very low burden on your engineering team to get in place. You don't have to go through and individually track events or taps or predict the future, basically. But you've got all this data in Heap. And obviously, we're all data-driven. Talk to me about how you get value from all this data being in Heap.
2: Data is really hot. Everyone's, everyone's talking about it. People are creating tons and tons of data. Every tool lets you export raw data and do this and do that. So people have a ton of data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting anything valuable out of it or you're able to answer questions or inform your decision-making process using data and incorporate it into day-to-day things. And that's not valuable. What is valuable is the tool that might have large amounts of data in the background, makes it seamless for you to, to phrase a question and get an answer to that question in real time. What you really need is the tool that is able to work with you and create value out of all this data that might be there in the back end, right? And Keep is the only tool that I've encountered that, that lets everyone instantly answer business questions.
0: Very cool. Thanks, Ellen, for speaking with me. For the listeners out there who want to check out Heap, go to heapanalytics.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. Use our special URL. Again, heapanalytics.com slash changelog. And now onto the show. All right, we're back. Jared, fun show today. I mean, this is a show, I think, how long? Sandy Metz, right? Like, we've wanted to have Sandy Metz on this show for Mm -hmm. years. And finally, finally,
3: we're always and ever, and also our listeners have pounded us relentlessly. Get Sandy on. Get Sandy on. and Yes, and we did. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us.
1: You guys are just making all that up. Oh, complete truth. <laughs>
3: 100% <laughs>
0: I'm truth. I'm so
1: happy to be here. Okay, so here, I'll stop. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for asking me. I wish I could have come sooner. Let me say that.
0: Well, we've, uh, we've been fans of yours, uh, read books of yours, uh, observed you teaching before... And you're just uh, such a just a wonderful person and an energetic teacher, too. And you give us hope in, in the people that are out there
4: doing what you do. So.
1: Well, you should have hope, right? It's like. The, the world is a, very, is a much more positive place than sometimes we think. And so, yeah, I, I applaud you for having hope. Keep on keep on doing that.
3: You give us the hope. That's that's the thing. Help us Andy Matt. You're our only hope.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I would say, right? I'm just a schmuck. And if, if I'm giving you hope, it means we can all give hope to each other. That's and right. That, that is a very hopeful thing.
4: Well, let's
0: let's give listeners some hope. Now. Let's tell your backstory because that's always a fun place to start when it, you know someone like you comes on the show like this and gets to tell your story and talk about your book and how you teach and all the fun things you're involved in. But kind of take us back to where you began because – you're just like anyone else, right? Like, are are you special are or you, are you not special?
1: I am not special. No, I am. Well, I'm a woman of a certain age. I wrote code every day for 35 years and then I wrote a book. We'll come back to that in a second. I got into programming because I was a music student at Florida State University. And it turned out that I was not going to be able to graduate with a music degree because you had to perform at a certain level. And I just wasn't good enough so I was looking for a job. I was trying to figure out how to get a job. I went to VoTech school in, okay, I'll say it, 1978 and learned to write COBOL and Fortran. Got a job at a state agency and wrote code on mainframes. I, I, when PCs came out in the 80s, I can remember, I distinctly remember feeling quite disdainful of those devices because I had a mainframe. Until so I've spent seriously, you were offended. Like I was well, it would just they just seem like such toys, such a waste of time. And I eventually got a little bit of a clue. I, I mean, I can remember building uh, eighty eighty six from parts that some friend of mine and order. Some friend of mine and I like figured out what like you need a motherboard and a power supply and a case to put it in, right? And a keyboard and. Some kind of a hard drive, tiny little hard drive, tiny little memory. And so I have, my life as a programmer has spanned a lot of generations of technology. Hmm. Somehow I've managed to make the transitions partly through, I I mean, I'll take a little bit of credit. I'm insanely curious And so I have enjoyed learning the new thing, but also I've just been lucky. I've been in the right place at the right time in, in, in businesses that were making technological trend transitions themselves. And so I've done everything. Like I've been a network administrator, I've been a DBA, I wrote many, many, many years of small talk. I got into Ruby and Ruby on Rails before the 1.0 release. Um, So I have this breadth of experience, which means uh, many problems fit somewhere in the slot in my, you know, I have a mental framework of computer programming that many problems fit into somewhere, even if I don't know the, like, things don't intimidate me like they once did, just because I have so much context.
3: Yeah. Let's talk about that, because... like you said, you wrote a book. This was, I believe, 2012 Practical yep. Object Oriented Design in Ruby. Uh, yes,
1: say it. Codename Pooter. Pooter. Uh, yeah. There it is. <laughs> and it's not a bad word. Okay. <laughs> My, I have a friend who was four years old at the time who would say pooter when he wanted the computer. Think of it that way. Ah, It'll make it I like that. The pooter. Just imagine you're a small child.
3: There you go. That's how I'm going to think about it when I say pooter. So, so you wrote pooter. It took off like gangbusters. Um, this was that, like you said, after thirty-five plus years of practical programming experience, writing you know production applications of all shapes and sizes. I'm sure. Yep. And Everything under the sun. You know, so it's one of these overnight successes that took you know it was probably forty years in the making or or, or what or whatnot. You know, this is so different than what we have in, in many cases today. I I think you know a programmer gets started the first thing. She does is write some blogging software so she can start blogging about you know, the programming. Mm-hmm. And you know I even encourage such things, so I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing to go out there and share novice knowledge, but you know now you go about speaking and teaching and consulting and writing books, and you had 35 years of doing it before you you know got started or thereabouts at least bookwise, right Yeah, is that the key to like all of your wisdom is, is that you were in it for so long and, 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 you know, should more people of your experience level be writing than less people of my experience
4: level be writing?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I would not recommend the path I took really. Okay. Um, because, because, because I, I think the advice that you give, if I understood you correctly, the advice that you just said you give to tell people early on to start. Yeah writing writing and sharing the things they learn yep that's probably the best thing to do i I didn't mean to write a book i didn't want to write a book the the story about how that book got written is uh, maybe longer than we want to go into here i mean the short version is you know there are people there are people with big publishing houses whose job it is to find authors yeah and so I got overheard doing a rant in the hall at a Ruby conference somewhere, a Rails conference maybe, after a talk that I thought um, explained some piece, I don't even know what it was, some part of object-oriented programming in an overly complicated way. Mm. And so I was in the hallway going, man, why do the people do that? It just makes everybody feel stupid. it It's so simple if you just think of it this way. And someone heard me. Who was one of those people on the lookout for folks to write books. Mm. And and so and and she started the woman who is now my publisher, my editor, started this campaign to get me to write a book. And so I'd go to a conference. It took her four or five years to make to me agree to get me to agree. So I'd go to a conference. Her name is Deb. I would go to a conference, I would see Deb. Deb would buy me a really expensive meal. And <laughs> say, and say, so like have that. you thought more about writing a book? Oh, I was so I felt so guilty because <laughs> every time I went someplace, I would get like really nice food at really nice restaurants. um And so eventually, I I agreed to write it, but it was partly actually one of the things that like she would trot out reasons why I should do it. So I'd, every time I would see her, you know, twice a year, there would be a new reason she would give me why I should do the book. And I'd be like, no, I'm not going to write a book. I, what do I know about writing a book? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to write a book. Yeah. I write email and documentation and code. I'm, I'm not going to write a book. And so finally she told me, you use open source software and you don't get back.
4: Oh, ouch!
1: yeah.
4: Dang.
0: That's <laughs> below the belt you? right there. Totally. Adam, don't, you, don't you like this dead
4: person <laughs> totally.
1: a lot? Totally. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was... <laughs> So, so then that made me think really hard. Like, like it was all the guilt card, right? Guilt about the meals, yeah. guilt about the software. And so finally I did agree to try to write things down. But I was woefully unprepared because I had not blogged. I, I didn't really have any experience. I, I mean, I had a lot of experience drawing on whiteboards at my business place. I was always that guy, right? The person who, like all the whiteboards in every office, every whiteboard had Long, complicated explanations of things, pictures that I had drawn in many colors. Like mm-hmm. it was a running joke at Duke University when I worked there. Um, so it wasn't that I was was unused to ex- being the explainer. I, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not the smartest guy in the room, but when I understand things finally, mm-hmm. they seem simple. So if I get it, I can exp- I can explain to anybody once I get it. That that's, if I have one strength, it's that. Yeah. All right, and so. I don't know. So I, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't have any experience writing and I, and, I don't know. So I cave like, like, like it really was it, like, if there's value in Puder, yeah, it is, we are, we should thank those New York publishing houses because I would never have done it left to my own devices. Never. That, that mm. book would not exist except they made me, they just would not take no for an answer.
3: Well, let's set the book aside for a second and just talk about your conference talks and your trainings and these other things. You have a lot to say and you have a lot to give. And people take the things that you say, your, your the explanations that you give and it apply it helps them write better software, you know, today and tomorrow and and moving forward. And I'm wondering if it's like not to take away any credit from you at all, but it's like, well, maybe it's because she spent 35 years doing this stuff and she's speaking out of 35 plus years of experience and like, it makes me think maybe us quote unquote youngsters should kind of like keep our mouths shut and just pay attention to people with, with all the experience for a little while. Do you, do wow. you th- Does that resonate with you or not?
4: Not no. at all.
3: Okay. Why not?
1: I, well, I mean, I would say, well, well, first of all, you can't assume it just cause someone's been writing code for, you know, there's that joke about yeah. you either have 10 years of experience or one year of experience 10 times. Right. So you have to be a little like I would I, I my instinctive reaction to what you said was the sense of caution about assuming that people who've been doing this a long time mm-hmm. are the people who have the best experience. Well said. So I, Right. I don't want to make a blanket rule about that. It, it, but it's also true. I mean, here's what I tell people. Like, like, I get a lot of questions from people where they tell me I'm always I'm always trying to get people to give talks. And the it's very common that I'll have a conversation with someone who seems thoughtful and curious and bright and energetic, Mm -hmm. and I'll say, "Have you ever given a conference talk? That it will change your life if you want, you know, if you if you want to move your sort of programming life, your visibility to the next level for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. to have more opportunity to what whatever right for whatever reason you might want to do that. The the first step, like you can you you can have a blog. Or you can get on stage, and people usually tell me, "Oh, I don't have anything to say." And I ask them, I ask them, I'll ask you guys, "Do you know anything now that you didn't know a year ago?" That's not a rhetorical question. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yes. Okay, For sure. And and so, is there anything? Is there any way, like, if you could go back in time and talk to younger Adam, younger Jared now? Mm-hmm is there anything you can imagine telling them that would have saved you some pain in this last year because of something you've learned
0: every day? I think about that every day.
1: Yeah. And so there's a song
0: about that from Bob Seger. How's it go? Dallas. I don't know. It's like a rock. I think it's, you know, 20 years, not where they've gone, that kind of thing, you know? Good one.
1: So if you, if you have that, Like, like younger Adam, younger Jared would be so grateful if you would get on stage and tell them that. And that's the talk you need to give. That's the, that's who your audience is. Your audience isn't like scary people that you imagine are all brilliant. Your audience is the people who are desperate to know the things you know now. Yeah. And, and your emotional connection to those people is, is, is very generous right? Like, how do you feel about younger Adam, younger Jared? Do you think they're idiots? Fools. Just fools.
3: <laughs> Handsome.
1: Well, okay. there's. A, we all think a little bit about that of our past <laughs> selves, but it, in general, are, are they well-meaning fools, or are they slacker fools?
3: Well-meaning.
0: Yeah. Of course, well-meaning. Depends on the yeah. day.
1: Yeah, and so you, like, do you feel sympathetic? Do you feel sympathetic toward them, or do you, do you think they're idiots that don't deserve your help?
0: Oh, they deserve our help, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so that, Think about that. So now you're giving a talk full of useful information to an audience to whom you feel very sympathetic.
0: Changes things.
1: It changes everything. And, it, and it's a talk you can give. Huh. It's a topic you know. And it's an audience that you feel you feel confident about.
0: So on that note, then, this is just I'm trying to play one other side of this. Do you ever get... Um, does Twitter ever put you down, so to speak, like the, the, the critics? And they seem, to, they seem to be on other platforms, too. But in our neck of the woods, the programming, software development, open source world seems to camp out on Twitter. Does the critics ever put you down? Does they, do they ever get you down? Because that's what, to me, there's a lot of critics on Twitter.
1: I, it's true. Okay. Hmm. I
0: mean, I love our audience, but there's a lot of critics out there that can really inhibit you from doing what you're saying.
1: I kind of have two I have two sort of completely different responses to that. One of them is that, so again, gonna, this is going to turn into questions again. Um, let me just apologize in advance. So, does it mean you're a good person if people say nice things about you on Twitter?
0: Certainly uh, helps my
1: ego a little bit. not, yeah, I'm not asking whether it feels good or not. that I'm um, what I'm asking is it, does it does it mean that you are good? if they say nice things about you? Uh,
0: no. It's sort of, it's probably an indicator. You know, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you this. And does it mean that you are bad Ooh. if they say mean things about you? Cause you can't have it. You can't have one without.
0: See Jared, that's part of her knowing the answer to her question. <laughs> right. We talked about that earlier mm-hmm. in the pre-call prepping for this. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess it shouldn't reflect actually who I am because I am who I am regardless of the critics. But it's hard. It certainly puts the
1: wall there. Well, I can't, see, I'm older. That helps. Mm-hmm. Being older helps. And so like fame came to me. this is like fame in a n- very narrow niche, absolutely. right. But a kind of fame that never, a kind of notoriety that would never have occurred to me that I would ever have mm-hmm. came to me when I was a mature adult, and it was very, very clear to me from day one that I couldn't get too attached to the nice things that people said about me. Like like if I gave that meaning, then the bad things have to have meaning too. If I if my identity came from what people were saying about yeah. about me online, I so I'm I pretty much just ignore it. That's the thing about critics. I I pay no attention. Mm-hmm. I I don't much read my press in, in either direction. But the other, so so there's that, right? You can ignore it. The other thing is, and this again is part of being older and and frankly part of being female, I think. Like, there's a way in which I'm everybody's, I don't want to be your mom, but I could be your, like, cool aunt. And Gosh. and people want to talk to me. And I, um, someone asked me very early on when my life took this abrupt change, they, they suggested that I had currency. And they challenged me about how I was going to spend it.
4: Mm. Huh.
1: And that, isn't that an interesting
0: idea? That's very close to the other one that was pivotal for you, which was you do so much with open source, but don't give back. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, like an, an ironic version of that, mm-hmm. a variation of that.
1: Uh-huh. I mean, now, yeah, at first I was a consumer and then suddenly I got like deposits made in this mysterious virtual, virtual bank account where I have cred somehow. And so uh, like I, I make. I have a, okay, I, I refer to myself, there's two Sandys, there's me and there's quote, internet Sandy. Mm, nice. Right, and internet sandy is the virtual image that people who don't know real sandy have of me and so there's a way in which we're the same person but there's also there are ways in which we're not quite the same like internet sandy is nicer than real sandy <laughs> and it's and it's because i want us to be nice i want to have a wonderfully enthusiastic conversation about differences of opinion online yeah, right and and, and so i w- because i want to have that conversation but i want the discourse to be civil mm. i want people who might not ordinarily engage in a in a boisterous difference of opinion to feel safe and comfortable doing it because i think we're all made better like if our if everyone's intentions are good and we have differences of opinion it means if we understood one another, we would all be better. Mm. And so I, because people want to engage with Internet Sandy, and Internet Sandy will not talk to you unless you are nice about it. Then what happens is I tend to the people who want to have um, negative discussions with me tend to fall fall away quickly because I don't engage with them. And the people who really want to have discussions with me online, uh, cl- uh adopt a matching tone. I'm very careful to be nice. And people match that tone. And so I don't have much problem with criticism online because of those two things.
4: Yeah.
3: So your generalized advice then would be that you do have something like to the younger person or to the inexperienced or whomever you're giving advice to is that you do have something to give. Mm -hmm. And that conference talks is a great way of doing that for the reasons that you stated. And secondly, ignore the haters.
1: Yeah, ignore the haters. Don't engage with the haters.
3: Yeah.
0: When you say don't engage, you just mean ignore completely.
1: Um. Very often, I say, um, like, if someone writes a comment on one of my blog posts that seems critical, I'll look through it and try to like, like, put your ego aside, look through it and see what they're saying. Right. And then I'll do that echoey thing where I'll write back. I'll I'll respond to their comment and say, as far as I understand, your concerns are in these two categories. Right, Like I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll ignore everything that sounds personal and critical yeah. and try to, you know, unearth the technical parts and turn the conversation back to technical and, and never and never say anything personally critical about them on the way back. And then if they like, it's so easy to miscommunicate in writing on Twitter, especially on Twitter, but certainly even on a comment on a blog. So yes. I try to I try to act as if they're well-intentioned. And I respond to them as if they were well intentioned. And then if they come back again and they seem snarky, then I don't respond. Like you don't get you don't get two tries with me. Yeah. I'm like I'll I'll assume your good intentions once. But then I don't know. Maybe we should just not be talking. Mm.
3: That's uh that's one of the reasons why I love the audio format so much. And just generally speaking, it seems like in text, and I feel like maybe I said this on a recent show, Adam, or maybe it was a pre-call, but in text. You know, people tend to take away the benefit of the doubt, like they take it, mm-hmm. and, as, and mm-hmm. in, in audio they give it back mm-hmm. because there's more humanity to the format. You know, they can, the voice inflection, the there's just more grace given, I believe, when you speak and are heard than when you write, when you have to be incredibly clear and precise with words in text. But in audio, there's more benefit of the doubt.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we had a miscommunication between the three of us right here we could recognize that it had happened in real time and fix it very quickly. And that's much harder to do going back and forth in text.
0: Well, we're coming up on our first break here soon, Sandy, but before we go into that break, I, I want to ask you this question. I think this, this is something we want to hear from you, particularly considering your experience and uh, the overnight success that you are, of course. Um, someone like you back in the day when you said COBOL and, and FORTRAN. FORTRAN um what was it that got you you know when you said you were i forget what you said you were going to school for that didn't work i was music right and it wasn't yeah, working music. out yeah. and yeah. so something wasn't happening there but then you know you got kind of tapped into programming i'm not even sure how that'd be an interesting story to hear but i'm curious like what was it about programming that got you
1: i went okay it was back in the day right where there wasn't like nobody had PCs, so no you the, the normal human being had no experience with programming. He had never written a computer program. It, did, it wasn't possible. Like, hardware didn't exist for us to mess around with. I went to VoTech school the very first day. We, we had an IBM 370. We punched cards. I wrote, I think, a 10-line Fortran program. And I was hooked forever. I remember. I don't remember what that program did, but I remember the feeling of taking the deck into the computer operator and having him run it and getting back output on that 11 by 14 green, you know, green and white barred paper. And it seemed like a miracle. Mm. It was so amazingly cool. I was a little, there was something a little magical about it. You know, that whole thing about technology that you don't completely understand.
4: Right.
1: And distinguishable from magic. I I was, I was bothered by the magical, the apparent, magic of it because i couldn't see how it worked because it's all electrical somewhere right and i eventually got over the magic but the boy being able to write a program and have it run was fascinating to me and i i have written code from that day till now and i i actually enjoyed as much today as i did then i i write too little code now and it's a disappointment to me Mm. writing books is not nearly as much fun as writing code Mm.
0: We do a lot of teaching, too, right? You you have a, yeah. a, a traveling class you do?
1: Yep. Yeah, I teach probably on average of maybe once a month. And teaching is really, teaching is exhausting. It's hugely fun. You can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine, right? You, you guys have seen the course. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the listeners know that you were, we, we met in yep. person at a course I was teaching. Yeah. It, you saw in there, like, students... You know, it's not like going and teaching a class where the students want to ignore you. It's
0: very interactive. I mean, yeah, Like pe- you were part of the class, so to speak. Like you were leading it, but uh, you were very much like entrenched in it. You weren't by any means talking at a podium and people were just listening.
1: Well, it's that whole thing about like, are you, what is your goal? Is it to stand up there and talk or is it to make it so that people can learn? Yeah. And there's something so fun about Do it, you know. I have a psychology background, so I did a bunch of research about teaching. And I feel like I, that for that course, it almost totally works to help people learn. And it is such a blast.
0: I think what's interesting too is to reflect back on Deb uh, challenging you with the whole giving back and look where that question from her got not only you, but all the people you've influenced. Mm Yeah, it's kind that's of that's amazing. I don't
1: know. Yeah, that's I, a big I, level up right there. You know, it's that whole thing about like I can't read my press. I, I'm grateful. I'm. It. It is well. The one thing I will say is that at this stage in my career, it is such a pleasure to find that the the things that have come to me sort of laboriously over time are things that I can pass on, mm-hmm. and that people are finding them useful. That is, I'm. I am deeply pleased to feel like to feel as if that is true in my life right now. What a wonderful thing at this point in my life to be able to pass all this knowledge on. Well,
3: let's take that first break. On the other side, we are going to tap into some of that knowledge, Sandy. We have some uh, OOP-based questions and lots of interesting things, which will lead us into a conversation around your new book, 99 Bottles, which you are co-authoring with uh, Katrina Owen, friend of the show. So we'll break here and we'll be back with a lot more goodies after this break. Hey everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief
0: of ChangeLog, and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash changelog. Check them out, get 90 days of the bootstrap plan, totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers.
5: Take a listen. CircleCI is a continuous integration and continuous delivery platform. Our customers are the developers in an organization. Developers rely on us heavily as part of their deployment workflow.
0: So clearly, you know, you're you're like a part of the machine that should not break, could not, should not break, right? If you break, you're one, losing trust, you're losing value. And ultimately, you're not delivering your brand promise. Let's talk about the obvious question here, which is, you know, how do you use Rollbar? So not just how do you use Rollbar, but why use Rollbar?
5: so i was talking about doing continuous delivery there and and one of the key parts about doing continuous delivery you don't just have to test your software but you have to constantly keep track of it you're going to be doing deploys 10 times a day or 20 times a day and you have to know that each deploy works and the way to do that is is to have really good monitoring and rollbar is is literally the the thing that you need to do that monitoring you need to make sure that every time you deploy you're going to get an alert if something goes wrong, and that's exactly what Rollbar does for for CircleCI for our infrastructure.
0: So let's assume anyone listening to this is someone who needs to use Rollbar. Someone needs to know about this tool, needs to know about this product, needs to know how it's changed, how you do business because of it. I'd like them to know how important this tool is to you, and a better question might even be, could you have done what you're doing with CircleCI without Rollbar's help?
5: We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. If there's people out there who ship code without Rollbar, I I can only imagine the pain that they're going through.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your time. So listeners, we have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up. Get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked totally for free. Give Rollbar a try today. Head over to rollbar.com slash changelog.
3: All right, we are back with Sandy Metz, and we're talking about object-oriented programming, her experience programming, teaching, and consulting. And Sandy, you've made your uh, recent living and much of your uh, time spent teaching other people how to do object-oriented programming correctly or better, or uh, I don't know what word you put on it, but you're kind of an OOP guru at this point. And so, have a lot of questions about object-oriented programming, and I thought we'd just start off with this one, which is, what are the best things, in your opinion, that OOP has to offer?
1: It, it, hmm, so it's a style of programming that lets you model a problem in a virtual world. And, and so there's a way in which we're creating... Like, like human beings seem... Uh, hardwired to tell stories about things and in some ways an object-oriented application is a story about a problem domain it's not a bunch of unrelated functions it's a living breathing entity that has characters and actors and players and things happen and so there's a way in which i I think it it, the the impedance mismatch between it, it has a smaller impedance mismatch between how our brains work and what we have to write down in order to make computer programs run and in order to solve a problem in the computer it, it's it's a better match than many styles of programming.
4: yeah
3: Just the ability to think about the nouns and the verbs that you're trying to program with by using mm-hmm. them, like we're talking about you know it's a bicycling thing, so it's bicycles and riders and and these ways that I would naturally think about it is a way that I can. I can code yeah.
1: it, and and not only that, like it's it's a it's a so it's a natural fit for all the nowny things. Yeah. But the one of the huge powers of OO is that I can create things that only exist as thoughts or ideas in the physical world. This world here, I'll I'm going to make a noise. Right, the world of my desk, like the world. Mm-hmm. It's easy to model the world of things, but you can also create. Uh, a world in which ideas are as real as things. Uh-huh. Does that make any sense? I can, I can, you know, the, the uh, I, okay, this is just, this is an example that comes right out of the new book and it's in my mind because I've been working on this chapter. Sure. You know, in a ticket app where you had buyers and tickets, you might also have refunds and purchases and a refund isn't, is the refund is an idea, but you can make an object for a refund and that, that refund object, is just as real as the buyer object in right. an object-oriented application, even though out in the real world it's not. And so, being able to model to create a world where ideas are as real as things is is enormously powerful.
3: So, yeah, you're taking a thing that's abstract in your real-world uh, scenario and you're making it more real in the programming scenario. It, when you think about object orientation, is is that what you think about? I know, like it's become, you know inheritance and polymorphism and encapsulation and these other things right that these things around it that
1: i mean these are ways yeah go you go
3: i would just say like if if you're going to be taught that you're gonna be taught oop uh in a traditional uh university or something like these are the things that they teach you these pieces of it but is that the essence
4: or is that
1: I think that misses the point. I, I mean, certainly the people who created the OO languages um, s- defined you know what it means to be an object-oriented language. And it, you know, originally those definitions would say, like, it would have these characteristics, right? Inher- it wouldn't be an OO language if it didn't have inheritance, for example. Right. Um, I, I think of inheritance as, as just a way to share behavior between objects or to... Actually, that's probably the wrong way to put it. Inheritance is a way to create a specialization of an object. Yeah, It's really not best to share behavior, but it's a technique, and there's a bunch of techniques. And the thing about techniques is you can just learn them, right? Knowing the techniques is really different from understanding how to uh, combine them in such a way as to make a virtual world of objects that is easily understood, easily changed, and does the job you want it to do. I I, Mm -hmm. I find I'm surprised when I go to teach at how my vision of what it means to think in an object oriented way doesn't seem that widely shared.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. I, I feel like I, when I go talk to people, they're my idea about what it means to write OO yeah. Uh, it 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 seems like a surprise to people when I explain it to them, and that surprises me.
0: Are these seasoned programmers or are they new programmers?
1: Well, very often they're seasoned programmers. they
0: yeah.
1: I mean, it runs the gamut. Like, like this does not seem to um, map in any way to the amount of experience people have.
0: Right. You think it's the way you think about it's different, or
4: just profound. I,
1: I, um. I think part of it's just I have so much – I've done. I've made so many mistakes over so many years writing OO that some things could not help but become more clear to me. You've
0: become a master at the maze.
1: <laughs> Maybe. I, like, again, it's like a thing I, I think I said a while ago while we were on here. I, now it kind of seems simple to me what it means to really be an object. Like an object is a thing that tries not to know very much and communicates with other things. By sending messages. And there's a bunch of techniques that we can use to create objects. Like I can use inheritance. I can use composition. I can, you know, follow design patterns. I can assemble objects in certain ways. But there's this fundamental deep, deep, deep bias I have. I I recently taught in London with a guy named Tom Stewart. He's the guy that wrote the Tom Stewart who wrote um understanding computation. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was speaking American English and they were speaking British English. So we had some miscommunications in the class um and there was a point where he interrupted me because he's a brit he interrupted me in front of the class and he told the students the thing you have to about un- the thing you have to understand about sandy is she feels entitled to send a message
4: huh
3: that's a weird way of putting it
1: yeah it made me laugh because that feeling of entitlement is so deeply embedded in me that i don't even realize i have it
3: what what do you, what it- Explain, just explain what you meant by that. You're you feel entitled to send a message. I was
1: having this rant because I was showing him some code and it was code where, uh, we were interacting, you know, it's code, you know, object A was interacting with object B and it was sending a bunch, it was looking at object B and had if statements that looked at qualities on object B. And then those the branches of the if statement supply behavior because of the result of conditionals where it checked things against object B. And I was having this whole rant about that. It's like, this is insane, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody gave you object B, like why are they giving you an object that you have to look at and then know things about and then supply behavior for a bunch of different behavior for that's conditional based on some things? This is crazy. Like, don't give me an idiot object. Just give me something that I can send a message to. And and there's a huge... Like I know hmm, that may sound incomprehensible, and it it definitely can be tough to talk about these things without code. Yeah, and, and so I don't want to get too deep down that rabbit hole. But there's a way in which, like I, like I go out in the world and I look at other people's code, and and I think, wow, you're a genius, because I could never have made this work. Uh- Like dependency laden, conditional bound, like huge, tightly coupled messes of code. Like you have to admire the people who are charged with keeping uh, long lived, uh, constantly maintained Mm -hmm. applications running that aren't really that are using object oriented languages, but don't. Uh, use uh, that that have that have let a lot of procedural programming techniques creep in over the years, because right. those apps are really hard. Oh my gosh! No wonder people hate them. Yeah, They're, it's just a nightmare. And and so I uh, I really firmly believe that apps can be way simpler than many of the apps I've seen, and I uh, find that. It's a surprise to people. Like, like I think people get me to come in because they think, oh, I have this terrible ugly app. And Sandy's gonna tell us, Sandy's gonna teach us to understand complexity. All right. Mm. I think that's what they think they're buying. And I and mm-hmm. I go in and look at their apps and I'm like, whoa, this is way too complicated. Let's make this simpler. And it comes as a great relief to people, I think, to see that OO is actually easy yeah. and hard. Anyway, sorry, I had a whole rant there, but uh, you can tell it I it. It kind of goes back
3: to Kent Beck's that Kent Beck statement: uh, first make the change easy. This may be hard, and then make then make yeah. the easy it change." Easy to, exactly. I think that's that's a brilliant way of distilling that. that kind of easy to say, hard to do. Although, in in the statement, there's a disclaimer: "This will be hard to do." <laughs> and so that leads me to just the thought of like, and I've been doing object-oriented programming for uh, you know 10 years or so, and so I've been on. Mm-hmm uh you know the good and the bad of it and i've written you know stuff i can't maintain and stuff that seems to be more maintainable and and the gamut um mm-hmm. and i've seen a lot of really bad oh you know i've a code out there that's procedural and falls into many of the traps that were kind of just taught these different techniques and tools and it's like you just go out and you start i'll try this here and then you're like oh you don't find out until maybe a couple <laughs> years later that, that was a really bad idea mm-hmm. um and so in many ways, I like Adam's metaphor of kind of the master of the maze, because there's a lot of traps, like there's a lot of bad ways of doing it. There's a lot of ways of getting it wrong or, or not as well factored as it could be in order to make this maintainable and usable moving forward. And so I guess the question becomes, and you, you, you know, you're kind of a, one of the masters of the maze, and you've been thinking this way so long, even a way that we, some of us haven't even got the right way of thinking about it. Is like maybe the whole paradigm is too hard. Like, is there a better, you know, maybe, maybe is functional programming the answer? Have you thought about like maybe OO?
1: I think the functional people would tell you that functional is the solution to the problems of OO. Yeah. But, but, right. do you, okay, really? <laughs> do you, I don't know. Do you think that it's not, do you think it is impossible? It's certainly true. I absolutely, uh, accede in that there are some problems that you cannot create for yourself in functional programming.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Just like there are some problems that you cannot create for yourself in statically typed OO languages. But do you think, if I ask you, is it possible to make a mess in a functional programming language, would you answer yes or no? Is it possible I'm to sure make I a mess? I'm sure I find a way. Yeah. I'd figure out how, yeah. I, I, I mean... I think the it, it feels like certain languages are good at certain problems. And then it behooves us as stewards of our customers' money to pick languages that are good fits for the problems they're asking us to solve. And that once we do that, then it is, once we pick a language that's suitable, it is our job to write code that makes sense in that language. Mm-hmm. And if if the question is, are some programming paradigms so naturally difficult that people shouldn't use them at all, I mean, maybe that's true. I I feel like, I feel as if we as a technical community have done a terrible job of teaching programmers of all styles of languages how best to write code. And that I, I don't really know what the fix for that is. So so on one hand, i approach this problem from two ends, right? On one side, we've done a terrible job explaining things. How how many technical books do you have on your bookshelves? Have you read every technical book that you've bought?
4: No. No.
1: Me neither. I mean, most of them I've read now since I finally wrote a book, people think I've read everything. And so it forced me to go back and get at least a passing familiarity with many books that people would think. Right, and so, so it's like we, we, and and when I talk, I, I see people, I t- I get people in my classes who have computer science degrees, who certainly don't know very much about object oriented programming, mm. and when I ask them what kind of training they had in college, they say, well, not you know, like we learned Java and we learned inheritance, <laughs> right? Um, and so, right. so we so there's a failure of teaching. That's one thing. However, mm-hmm. the other thing is this thing about cargo calding new ideas. I distinctly remember when I read the design patterns book back, back in the day, right? Not long after it came out and how I felt like I'd been saved. It was so, it was such a relief to see the, how the clarity that they had around categories of problems that occurred over and over again. And I just used those design patterns everywhere. I use them all over my code in yeah. inappropriate in places. Right, same thing with TED yeah. came out. Right, when uh, I decided I was going to get them on the testing bandwagon, people who seemed smarter than me were saying it was a good idea, and I went from being a pretty useful, competent programmer who could get a, get a lot done to do it to being able to accomplish almost nothing from one day to the next because I was so bad at writing tests and my tests were. I was bad at writing. I was slow. And I was bad at writing tests. And Mm. so my desire to use this new thing that seemed like a good idea um, caused me harm instead of doing good. And does this mean that testing is bad or that design patterns are bad? No. Does it mean that I I was terrible at them when I started doing them? Yes. But how Mm. else could I have learned? Like, what is the alternative? And, And so one of the things that I'm a firm believer in, is not denying people the opportunity to learn from making mistakes. And that means that all of us, like, unless you came out of the egg as knowing all the answers, you're just going to learn from writing code. And so I think there's a lot of OO code out there where people... Uh, didn't get the chance to stick with it so that they could learn stuff. They came from procedural or they went to, they have a CS degree where they didn't really learn to lear, understand OO. And then they wrote a bunch of apps that people maintained over a bunch of years. And those apps are big and messy and hard to understand. But I'm not convinced that any other programming language under any, under the similar circumstance would not be equally imperfect. Yeah. Over and years. I, I'll say one more thing about this and then I'm going to shut up. Like I see a bias. I I realize that I have a bias and it is because when people call me, like people don't call me when things are perfect. And so it is true that maybe I skew a little bit toward the the big, large, unmaintainable OO app. Right. However, I, right. That could be, I'm aware that I need to be careful about that. But I believe that despite that, Despite that qualification, I believe this statement is true. Any business that's been, anybody that's been in business for 10 years, anybody who won has apps that are a mess. And those, those pretty apps that you see here are from the startups that disappear. Mm. Right? That Like when, for, it, it is a, it should be considered a triumph, a triumph of persistence and an ability to survive in the marketplace to have big computer applications that are imperfect because yeah. they all are, they all are. That's the world we live in that there's a big mess. And our job is to figure out how to deal with it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you talked about the, what OO is, you know, you're modeling the real world or you're modeling thoughts in code. And, you know, the real world is messy and it's full of yeah. edge cases and corner cases and except if the this happens and like those kind of things, like, yeah, exactly. And like, that's, it almost seems inevitable that a piece of software that maps to the world long enough to watch the world, first of all, be messy when it was, but also change over time mm-hmm. is uh, if that's going to be a you know pristine kind of a holy temple, pro- it seems like it's impossible to, to maintain that over time. Well, you said it right
0: there, Jared. Like if you're if you're writing software modeled after the world, we can all look at the world and know it's messy. The world changes. There's variables. There's brokenness. There's a constant uh, stream of change in our world. So we can only expect any software we write to model the world we live in to be and have similar attributes.
1: Ah, and so our job as programmers isn't to make perfection. It's to deal with imperfection. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to figure out a way to keep on adding new features, improving old features, meeting our customers needs in the face of success, which is probably ugly and messy. And and there's a way in which adult. I mean, I, when in my, in my classes I tell them that the most fun part of our job, the the most challenging part for adult programmers, experienced programmers, is transitioning from one big mess into a new design. And and you want to have some fun writing code? Like, go do that. That's a real problem. Those are mm. those are the problems that like, you know, make you get up in the morning and sort of drink two cups of coffee.
4: <laughs> yeah. Get on right. right?
1: And, 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 and if we believe, like, if we, if we judge ourselves by the perfection of our large apps, uh, it, by, the, by the perfection instead of just by the mere longevity and existence, like, that, uh, that's a bad, it's, it's, just, it's just a bad, like, you are not your code. <laughs> and yeah. feeling like big apps have to be perfect, it, it's a way just to make yourself feel terrible because they're, they're just not going to be. They aren't. They never are. And like I said, I'm, I'm a little skewed because of what I see, but I, I believe it's true even for people who don't call me.
3: Let's talk a little bit about what you've seen out there as a teacher and a consultant you know, coming into these large companies that are successful and have you know, OO-based applications that are in you know, different states of disrepair or perhaps still working but hard to change. What's uh, one mistake or give us a couple that most programmers make with regards to uh, you know, production code? that you just see it time and time again, and we're, always, we're all making the same mistakes. If we, if we had a couple of those, what would
4: they be?
1: I, I would say two things. One is that everybody's tests are killing them. Hmm. They're absolutely killing them. And, it, and it's because we haven't, you know, we cargo called the idea of testing. I think testing is right. I think TDD is right, and testing is right, and it will save time and money. But it feels like, as a community, we, the, the vast majority of our community hasn't yet tipped over to the point where they're good enough at testing so that tests save them money all the time instead of costing them mm. money. Test we run too long, they're too tough they, they interfere with change. Um, they well, they interfere with change and they run too long. They make it harder to write new code. Mm. And so if we could just get better at testing, it would save a lot of pain. Um the other thing is that it's been a it's been a thing I've been all over for the last couple of years. I, I see a lot of huge conditionals. In code, like what happens is that people in in big OO applications, for the ideas that are at the the core ideas in the business are often embodied in huge classes, and uh, the uh, ideas are on the edge. But often applications have lots and lots and lots of beautifully uh, elegant. Single responsibly small classes, and then there'll be one huge five or 10,000 line class mm-hmm. that is at the center of their domain user if you're a Rails app very often. But, uh, but anything, right. whatever the core idea is in the domain, is it? And what has happened is that we get in this situation where the easy things were easy to do, but the hard thing got out of control and then all the code just got put in one class. And and then what you have is just a bunch of procedural code <laughs> in a very large file.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And so that finding a way to commit to writing small objects, even though, and I don't tell people like you, you you're not going to go fix all the fat ones, huge ones you have now, but as things change, you should make new small objects instead of making big things bigger. And so that one thing, having that one, that one huge class, it has a bunch of conditionals in it where all the all the important parts of your business somehow are in there it makes it, yeah. it makes it really hard to move forward
3: earlier on you said I mean, we, we should try to teach what is a good way to write programs despite the language or kind of at a higher level than paradigms or languages and uh, I guess the question would be like if you had to pick what that way is would you say like makes things small would that be like your' guiding concept or would you, would you have others?
1: I, hmm, maybe. Uh, very often when I, okay, I'll t- this, is, this is just a personal story about me. When Very often I write, when I try to write some code, it'll start out simple and then it'll get ugly and complicated. And then sometimes if I'm, if I have enough insight into the problem, I can make it simple again. And so, and, and then, so I end up with this, I start out with small things and then I get this bloat, confusing intermixing of ideas, period. And then sometimes on the other side of that, I'm back to small things, a bunch of small things, all of which represent a small idea. It feels like we don't, it's almost as if we don't have the correct appreciation for the difficulty of simplicity. And that we don't, once we reach, it's almost like we, We think complex code, like we love complicated code. We love looking at complicated code. We love writing complicated code. And there's a way in which we value complication and we think highly of people who can produce complicated code. Uh But, But the truth is simplicity is harder than complexity very often. And if we valued simplicity more, I think we would reward those who achieved it and we would strive harder to achieve it. And we'd all be better off. And so we, you know, we do this thing where we overvalue complexity when it's just a way to intimidate people very often. Right. It's just to to me, when I write complex code, I believe I have failed in some way to communicate the idea. Like it only ought to be as complex as it needs to be. Right. Very often less complex than I've made it. (laughs)
3: You leave a comment right above uh, kind of explaining why how you're going to come back and make this less complex <laughs> yeah, later. Exactly.
1: That that comment that says, I'm really sorry, the one that starts that way. Yeah,
3: apologizing <laughs> for this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm apologizing I've, for my code. Yep. I wrote that uh, comment recently. Okay. One last question before our next break. Uh, you know, you spent all these years, you know, basically as a nine to five software developer. Um, recently, that's changed. You're now... As we've said, you're a writer, you're a speaker, you're a teacher, you're all these other things. Do you ever fear that you might lose your edge if you're not able to write production code on a regular basis?
1: Totally. Totally. Absolutely. I, I write way too little code now. It's, it's interesting. I, I feel like I have not yet lost it. And there, there's some ways in which I understand code better now than I did when I was writing code eight hours a day because I have the leisure. To think about code, and so that uh, balances out somewhat I hope the whatever skill loss I'm having from not writing code eight hours a day, but uh, I think that's a great question, and I think mm. uh, it's it's a thing that I am definitely uh, paying attention to
0: as being a teacher helped ingrain anything that was loose for you that is now way solid because you've taught it so many times?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, here's the thing, right? Every learner sees the world a different way. And so every idea that seems obvious to me is not at all. If you're just like me, it's easy for me to explain things to you because you think just like I do. But if you think in a different way, then I have to find some way to reach you with ideas. And so the challenge of communicating with people who are different than me has made, forced me to look at things I thought I understood and understand them in different ways. Mm. So I feel like I have a much broader understanding of really what truth is about programming and what truth is about these ideas. And it's been enormously helpful to me. That has improved my code a lot. Like I can now, it's easier for me now to look at big, messy blobs of code and say, oh, it has this problem. This is the core thing that's wrong with it and in a way that I can see it and I, and I can explain it. And, and that that's a result of teaching.
0: Well, as Jared said, we are getting close to our next break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about 99 Bottles and kind of go deeper into this rabbit hole, so to speak, that you've opened up for us. <laughs> uh, Jared mentioned earlier we haven't read the book, but we have experienced firsthand your teaching. And uh, we kind of extract a lot of the questions we have around that. So we'll take this break and we'll come back talking about that. If you want to learn something new, a proven method is to learn by doing, and that's exactly the way Code School works you learn to program by doing with hands-on courses. Their courses are organized into paths based on technologies like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, with hot topics like React and Angular, Ruby, Python, .NET, iOS, Git, databases, and even electives that take you off the beaten path. Say you wanna learn React, you can start level one of CodeSchool's React course, which begins with a quick video on React components. After the video, you get hands-on practice building with components using their in-browser coding challenges. There's no hassle, no setup, just learning. And the best part is when you use our special URL, codeschool.com changelog, you save an extra $10 per month instead of paying $29 you pay nineteen dollars because you're a listener of this show. Again, use our special URL: codeschool.com/changelog. Don't Google it. That's the only way to get our special deal. Once again, codeschool.com/changelog and learn by doing. All right, we're back with Sandy Metz talking about ninety-nine bottles of OOP. What an awesome title! A practical guide to writing cost-effective, maintainable, and pleasing object oriented code who came up with that was that you all, all alone that tagline
1: the tagline uh, i don't know probably i'm i am the the writer of taglines so it probably was me though it's hard to say at this point the origin of the all the best phrases well there's been so much collaboration with Katrina Owen who's also writing with me yeah. on that book that it's sometimes like m- most of the final writing is done by me but I can't. I don't feel like I can claim any single idea as my own, right? It's a shared so much thing. yeah, going on.
0: I mean, it's it's inviting, right? A practical guide. Everybody is welcome to this. Like, it, it's it's good for anybody. Writing cost-effective. That's that that uh, speaks to CTOs and anybody who's trying to save money with their development team. Maintainable. Right. Who doesn't want that? And pleasing, pleasing object-oriented code. But uh, why this book? Why now?
1: Uh, why this book right now? Okay, I'm teaching the course. I, this book is uh, a programming exercise that i do in the classes in my practical object-oriented design course the course i am now booking next summer i'm, I'm booked into the summer of 2017. i don't want to raise prices anymore because i'm i have a blue-collar background i find the everything that we pay in tech seems enormously high to me i am unwilling to raise prices anymore on my course but it means i'm filtering now by time and even so much of the content that i'm teaching is unavailable to most people like there's no matter how many talks i do and no matter how many private and public classes i teach i'm the the classes are reaching numbers probably in the in the 3 digit 4 digits by now in the thousands The talks reach a much broader audience, but even so, there's this huge body of knowledge that is an outgrowth of the course that is completely inaccessible to most people, and I I felt, I feel a lot of sympathy toward programs who are like me, who have my background, who are essentially untrained, who learned on the job, who were reliant on other people to take the time to write things down or tell us or give talks. And so Katrina and I agreed that we would uh, take what's effectively the first two days of the course and write it all down and so that we could sell it to individuals. And so that's where the book came from. Um, We meant to make it for, I don't know, pricing is always an issue, but for a reasonable, reachable amount of money. Uh, available to anybody who wanted to read it. And so that's where it came from.
4: A lot of, um,
0: people who write books like this, or they, they would think potentially to add some videos to it or have tiers where you have not only your $49 version, you have maybe an even less, uh, even more affordable version of it and an even less affordable version of it, where it's like you've done some videos and there's some extra goodies or some sample code or something like that. Why Why have you chosen just one? Pricing point for that. At
1: the the price, okay. Pricing is so hard,
0: right?
4: It is. It's- what I-
1: what is fair? What is right? And so we we started off. We started off being like ten dollars. Ten dollars is the right price. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the years went by. We've been working on this book for two and a half years. We we finally decided in the end that we we're going to price it with all the other books in its category. Avdi Grimm's book, Jim Gay's book, the the people we know who are self publishing. Mm-hmm. Or pricing at this price point. The tier thing, so we, then that left us with a moral dilemma. Okay, if our purported goal is to make this available, this content available to people who can't afford to come to a course, what about people who don't have $49? And so we stole an idea from Abdi Grimm, which is the postcard plan. If you send me a postcard, we will, mail, we will email you the book for free. And so there are really two prices for the book. There's $49, and there's a postcard. And the postcard is not like uh, – it is not a piece of a cut-up section of a box with a first-class stamp on it. What's
3: the, yeah, what's the point of it?
1: Right. Uh, like the point is to make people go to a little trouble. And, well, the, there's a couple points One, first one. First of all, for us to get the coolest postcards on the planet – But the next the next thing is to make a barrier of uh, enough of a barrier so that it's clear that you that money is money is in short enough supply that you would be willing to trade a little bit of time for it. I like that. Because what we want is a real postcard with a postcard stamp. And then you have to write a little thing on it that says how you will do good in the world how How having this book for free will help you accomplish some good thing in the world. Huh. That's what we want, right? And we've gone, I, I don't know how many yet because the postcards don't come to me, but it's it's been hundreds. It did say um maybe ten percent of the copies of the book wow. have gone for free to people. we We just had a long email thing from some guy actually, because he sent a postcard from somewhere in uh, Eastern Europe and he wanted to know if it had arrived because we hadn't mailed him a book yet. And he sent email and it was this long narration of the path that his postcard would have had to have traveled geographically. Like it went overland from my house to here and then it got on a boat across the Baltic Sea, right? And so he was trying to explain how it might be that his postcard might not have actually arrived. But mm. in, to assure us that he sent, when he took a picture, he showed us, a he mailed a, emailed a picture of himself nice. holding the postcard that he mailed us. And we're like, just send here a book.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you, you've worked and, hard enough.
1: Yeah. You've, uh, yeah, And so, uh, like, we, I've been working on it for two and a half years. And I am just so delighted to give it to people who can't afford it. But it does seem like not too much to ask. Yeah. That they would go to a little bit of effort. And so it was really great, right? Uh, you know, another thing that happened that has happened a lot since I self published that book is that we get there's so many countries in the world where the exchange rate is bad relative to the U.S., and some authors have a policy to sell books at half price to say Brazil. But I, I just it, it feels like perilous waters to navigate. Like, does every different country have a different? Price based on their exchange rate relative to the dollar. So, I don't know. So, in the end, we're like free or $49. You can, you know, (laughs) give us money, give us money, or send us a postcard. Like, like, and what finally, some people really do want to pay something. And so, we uh, on the website where you can buy the book, there's you can buy karma. (sighs) So, there's like a $10 karma and a $25 karma, and you can buy them any combination. And so when we send people free copies of the book, we tell them your copy free, feel no obligation. But if you're one of those people who wanted a discount that we wouldn't give you, we made you send a postcard and get a free book instead. If you wanted a discount, you can buy. You can, there's a way for people to give us like a part of the price of the book, but they get to decide. I don't decide for them.
4: Let's
3: talk about the content of the book.
1: Yeah. The, Chapter five is coming out this week.
3: It's currently at, according to your website, 45,000 words, which to me sounds like a lot. So it's all about a single programming problem, which is, yeah. you know, the name of the book, 99 Bottles. This is a single problem that you give as part of your course. Describe to us the problem and then why this makes for a good kind of example case for applying all these different uh, object-oriented ideas to it.
1: So the problem is 99 Bottles of Beer Song, the exact same one you sang on the bus as a child coming home from school trips. the The task is to write code to produce the lyrics to that song. That seems incredibly simple until you try to do it. Hmm. At which point you discover that there's hidden complexity.
3: Well, the give complex, us an example of oh, you probably were just going
1: to. Well, Okay, so well, we have to sing a little bit then, right? So, yeah. so nine bottles, beer. So the first verse, the the verse that starts with nine nine bottles, and the verse that starts with ninety eight bottles. They're almost identical. It's just the numbers change, mm. right? You get all the way down to three uh three bottles of beer on the wall three bottles of beer take one down and pass it around two bottles of beer on the wall okay so that's still the same but listen right. to the next verse two bottles of beer on the wall two bottles of beer take one down and pass it around one bottle of beer on the wall so one bottle is singular right that's not so bad right the next verse the one verse uh has a similar problem but instead of take one down it says one bottle of beer on the wall one bottle of beer uh Take one down, pass it around. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and then the zero verse, in the zero verse, instead of taking one or it down and passing it around, you go to the store and buy some more. And the right. zero verse, if you've sung it on the bus, you may recall, once you get to no bottles of beer on the wall, no bottles of beer, take them down, pass it around, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. And so the, like we that. all think we know that song. We think it's simple, but there's if you just if you're not careful, you can write a bunch of if statements.
3: <laughs> that's that's the way that I would do it first. It's just like, well, there's like seven ifs and I'm done.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, it's interesting to, so it turns out that the problem, the, the problem has a, a couple of really great characteristics. One, it's kind of fun. We can all sing in class when we work on it. Two, it's a problem domain that everybody knows. We don't have to teach you about bank loans in order to have a class exercise. Uh, three, it seems simple, but actually it's sneakily complicated. And those three qualities combine to make it a really useful programming exercise. In the book, you know, there are a number of ways to do it. I wouldn't say that I have the perfect solution to it at all. But the, the nice thing about the problem is the kinds of uh, difficulties that you get into trying to write code for it provide a scaffolding to talk about big ideas in object-oriented programming. So it's really easy to talk about the Liskov substitution principle because there are sort of natural Liskov violations in that song. It's There comes a time when it's really easy to talk about inheritance versus composition because we end up in situations where we have to choose what we're going to do. It's easy to talk about mutability. There's a place in the song where uh, having immutable objects is possible, but you could mutate them instead. And what does it mean to do that? We're an object-oriented language, but immutability is a big idea that we should you know, freely steal from the functional people. Um, and so it isn't, you know, the goal of the book isn't to write the perfect solution to the 99 bottles of beer problem. The goal of the book is to take a problem that everybody knows that you don't have to bend any extra brain power to understand the domain and, and use that problem to explain ideas in OO. And, and it's pretty perfect for that.
3: Very cool. We'll take the last 10 minutes or so and just we're going to give you some rapid fire questions, uh, listener questions, some listeners, some are ours, uh, if you're cool with that. The first one I is actually related to the book, so I want to ask that one first. And somebody would like to hear from you about the overall experience of writing the book. You can get some insight there.
1: Um, I find writing torturous. Um and yet, I, I'm weirdly compelled to do it. Like, I'm really happy when it's done, but I hate doing it. I, mostly what we do is we write all the coding samples. Like, we do all the code, all the code examples. Then I pseudo-write around it. And then I go back and laboriously write. I'm a little dyslexic, so very often I'll, I'll write paragraphs and then read them out loud until I like the way they sound. Um, that, that To do a chapter that way takes me about... Uh, if I work on nothing else, if I'm not traveling or teaching or working on a conference talk, that's about a two-month process. Then I have a, a professional editor, and I have I'm um, Chapter Five is going to come out this week. I'm just finishing the third round of professional editing for it, and so I, I, writing is hard. Other people are faster. I, I'm keenly aware that other people write faster than I do, but yeah. I've just given up trying to be faster. I'm I'm what I am. It hurts.
3: Was this one of these books that was like uh, – was it an open beta type of a book where you were writing it in public or did you keep it behind the fence and release it? How would that go?
1: We didn't – um, I talked to a number of people. I was getting a lot – it took a while to write it and people knew we were writing it. So like we kept getting bugged and bugged and bugged. Yeah. Um, finally, I talked to a bunch of people about like when can I release a beta? When is it ethical to release a beta? Because recently a beta means taking people's money, like selling the beta and so it was pointed, someone gave me a great criteria. They said, it has to be, what you give people has to be enough so that if you got hit by a truck and never never gave them another word, it would be, you You would feel that it was worth it. And so that let, made it pretty obvious that the book would have to go through chapter four. Chap, chapters one through four would have to be done, which is that, whatever it is, 45,000 words. I mean, it's a hundred and, I don't know, 50, 80 page, eight and a half by 11 PDF right now. It's big. It's almost as big mm-hmm. as Pooter in in the beta. Mm-hmm. And so, right, I, mean, I
4: don't know. The, uh,
1: we did it, I, 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 there was a way in which I slightly regret it. I, you know, I have always, I'm always over optimistic about how much writing I can get done in a period of time. And I, as soon as, well, it's just so surprised me that people bought it. So we released <laughs> and a bunch of people That's bought funny. it, like, that yeah. day. And right? so then I felt this enormous pressure to get the rest of the writing done. But I am such a slow writer that feeling that pressure did not speed up my writing at all. It just made me feel pressure while I was writing.
3: That that <laughs> actually so, leads us directly into yeah, the next I question, know. which is, is there a lot of pressure to be, quote, Sandy Metz?
1: Um, I... Well, again, there's Internet Sandy and there's real Sandy, right? I, I feel some, I, I wouldn't say pressure. Uh, as Internet Sandy, I feel some obligation to model the behavior I want, the face I want to present to our community. Mm. And so it helps me be nice even if I feel tired, say, right? Mm. Um, the pressure I feel is I want to... You know, there's a certain uh, like I would love to see more diversity in our community and part of having a broad range of different kinds of people, ages, genders, races, uh, ethnic backgrounds. Right. Uh, Part of that means uh, having the community be have lots of representation in it partly means when you if you come to our community and you're not well represented, you're not part of a well represented group. It can be easy to feel like there's no place for you. And uh, so I am, um, that that mission is near and dear to my heart. And so part of the reason I go out is because I represent a little bit of a narrow demographic in our community. I'm older, I'm female, I'm, I'm certainly white, right? So I'm, I'm Caucasian. So that puts me right in right. the middle of a big broad demographic group. And But so I find that I feel an obligation to respond maybe to requests to go out and be internet Sandy for people. And I, that, it's always a challenge to know when, when, you know, how much can I stay home and rest? How much should I go do those things? Even if I feel like I don't, I'd rather stay home and play with a dog. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so pressure, like pressure, uh, you know, I would, I could whine a little bit about the pressure yeah. that travel gets wearing and all that. But I love my life. I love our community. I love if you're if you're me and you've come at the end of your long life, you can feel the uh, the sort of kind regard of the people in our community. It's a wonderful thing. I, f- I feel like I, I feel obligation to live up to it. But I, I wouldn't really call it pressure.
3: Okay. Next one. This is, I'll just quote this one because I like the way he wrote it. I'd be keen to know if a person like Sandy ever gets wowed by development trends or falls victim to nerd hype.
1: Whoa, yeah. I think that's a whole cargo culting thing, right? We fall at <laughs> the clip, We're like, whoa, that's so cool. I'm going to do that. They must be right. And then, you know, two weeks later, you're like, what a mess. Why did I do this? I hate myself. <laughs> if we had perfect foresight, we would write perfect code. But it's a matter of, you know, you just do the best you can with what you have, and you, like, don't be attached to your code. As long, as long as I can walk away from mistakes and acknowledge I made them, then things are pretty painless. If I, it's only when I hold on to a bad idea that I regret.
0: What's a good example of nerd hype, Jared? <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, there's lots of different examples. What would be a good example of nerd hype? Perhaps some of the, you know, in the JavaScript world, you'd have a new uh, framework or animation type of a thing, and and now you're going to follow that rabbit hole for a little while Mm -hmm. and then come back. I don't know. What do you think, Adam? What's a good nerd hype example?
0: I'd probably say the same. Like, something that's, I mean, open source moves so fast, it's difficult to keep up, and I would think that the next... New thing could be not so much nerd hype, but it could be easy to always want to be on the train,
3: you know, because it's exciting. Well, one thing that we know Sandy is interested by, at least, is Elm because yeah. she has Andy. Sandy, you told us you have a tab open uh, on a browser that you haven't quite got to yet, which is kind of a learn Elm tutorial. So whether it's hype or uh, a trend, or if it's you know something that's going to last, at least that has caught your caught your attention.
1: Totally. I mean, I know that JavaScript people often feel like the, like they don't get enough respect from, you know, say Elixir or Go, right? There's some there's some pecking order of programming languages, and JavaScript is not at the top. And, I, I, and that seems completely wrong to me, right? JavaScript might take over the world. We might all regret not being really good at JavaScript and learning. Huh. I, I've it's been on my list for a while to get better at JavaScript, but you know, Elm is now, and then I get to combine my desire to learn something about functional programming with a desire to do a little, get a little more in the JavaScript space. So what's not to like yeah. about that combination? It's, yeah. it's a play toy project for me, but I could easily imagine using that, having that move more into, you know, big time apps. Mm.
3: Just want to thank Brian Douglas for that one. He's a changelog member. I think he wouldn't mind us mentioning him by name. So Brian, thanks for that question. Next one for you. We got two more questions and we're getting close to time. So here it is. Is 99 bottles your swan song? Are you ready to ride off into the sunset or do you have more to give to the software community?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. swan song. That's hilarious. Uh-huh. I, I, I mean, here's the thing. Everything you know seems simple and obvious. And. My, the content that I create, that I tell other people, is an outgrowth of having conversations with people where they're like, "Wow, you're genius!" and about things that, you know, are are comfortably sort of already in my brain. And so, uh, figuring out what it is that uh, th- things that I've learned in my long life that just seem that are second nature to me now that other people are interested in hearing about. That, that's what triggers these things, right? That's what triggered teaching. It seemed, it seemed obvious to me, but clearly it was useful to other people. So who knows what's going I cannot even predict what's going to happen next.
0: So your plan is not for this to be your swan song. but
1: I'm, I'm not done.
0: You're not done. How can
1: we be done? How can we be done? We're not done. There's tons of code left to write. That's
0: right. So we mentioned earlier, I think it was the pre-call, but uh, you've been named as the hero uh, of many people who have been on this show before. I'm going to get you a list. But uh, we like to ask anybody who comes on the show, you know, especially someone like you. You've had to have some influencers throughout your life. Who is influencers, programming heroes, whatever you want to call them? Who is that person or persons to you? Who, who's your hero? I,
1: okay, I'm going to mention the name of someone that no one listening could possibly know. Uh, and he was, okay, I worked for Sperry Univac back in the day. I was a young pup. And there was a grizzled senior system guy who was, oh, probably 30 years old. I don't know, he was way older than me. And he was such a great teacher. He kind of scared me to death, but he was incredibly gentle with me in a gruff sort of way. And he made me feel as if I had a place in this community. And so his name is Rich Working Team. Like I said, he's probably, I don't even know where, there's no way he'll ever hear this. But it's not the people now. There's tons of people now who are wonderful people who I could mention, but the difference that was made in my life was made when I was a young programmer. Mm. And, and, and the, you know, we all have that obligation to treat kindly the tender youths, right? So that's a lesson. That's a lesson for you guys and for everyone who's listening, right? The kids are who needs us, not the grown-ups.
0: So your hero is someone who, who influenced you young on and Mm -hmm. help shape your career right
1: influence a lot of people right and so those are and there's a lot of heroes like that what i want is everyone to be that kind of hero
0: i think we all aspire to be that's for sure and it's nice when we get a chance to be and i think if you do get a chance to be honor that and and do it well but Sandy, we are out of time with you. I know you've got uh, a hard stop. So I want to mention your your book URL on, on the air so that people can go and check this out. SandyMetz.com slash 99Bottles. We'll have it in the show notes, so go go check that out. But any closing thoughts from you whatsoever before letting you go?
1: No, this has been such a treat. Thank you both. Okay.
0: Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Sandy, thank you for your time and all the work uh, that you're giving back. Uh, thanks to Deb. Thank you, Deb. for that question and that guilt trip that you put Sandy on because (laughs) we're riding the ride of Sandy Metz and it's because of your question and your perseverance. Thank you very much. So that's it for this show. So let's say goodbye.
3: Bye. Bye. Thanks Sandy.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys.